Hello and welcome. This is a podcast on lived experience-led mental health support in terms of COVID-19 by China Mills and Akiko Hart as part of Through, Up, Through the Portal program, a community-led health program created in response to COVID-19, but relevant before and beyond. So to introduce our absolutely incredible speakers today, we've got China Mills, who researches and teaches about global and mental health. She is a senior lecturer in public health and program director of the Masters of Public Health, the MPH at City University of London. And Akiko Hart is the CEO, CEO of Ensun, the National Survivor User Network, she has previously worked as the Hearing Voices Project Manager at MIND in Camden and the Director of Mental Health Europe. She is a trustee of ISPS UK, the English Hearing Voices Network and National Voices. So I'm going to hand straight over to China, who will be holding the session. Thank you so much, Sarah, for introducing us and for grounding us. And just thank you so much to Healing Justice London for making this space possible. It's, it's such an honour to be invited to be part of this wonderful work. Um, so we want to welcome you who are listening into the space and into the conversation we'll be having today. And um, just to uh, reiterate what Sarah said, our aim is for the conversation to be accessible and meaningful. If we use any jargon, then we'll try to uh, talk about what our understanding of those words mean. Uh, we won't be talking about personal stories of distress in detail. And if we feel anything might be triggering in, in any way, then we'll say so beforehand. So the aim of the session um, today is to share learning and to talk about organising and mutual aid in relation to mental health in times of COVID-19. So we hope also to talk about what makes lived experience work perhaps different to other forms of support and the diversity and energy of the lived experience-led, community-led and user-led sector around mental distress in the UK today. So just to, to recap, my name's China Mills and I'm joined here by Akiko Hart, who's the Chief Executive Officer and CEO of the National Survivor User Network, Ensign. So I'm going to ask Akiko some questions and we're going to have some, some conversation together about some of the, uh, the key work of Ensign. So Akiko, would you just be able to introduce yourself a little bit more and tell us a bit about your journey to becoming the CEO of Ensign? Hi China, um, thank you so much first of all for inviting me today, it's, um, it's an honour to be here. Um, I always find it quite hard to um, situate myself in mental health um, because I find it's often a world where you're allowed one identity but not another one, so I find it always a little bit tricky. Um, I suppose I, I came to this role because I had an interest and experience in rights-based mental health policy, I used to be the director of Mental Health Europe. Um, just before I was at Ensun, I worked at a medium-sized um, UK charity mind in Camden, where I helped set up um, and facilitate hearing voices, peer support groups and networks in the community and in other settings like prisons, forensic secure units, immigration removal centres. So I suppose I came to this work um, kind of interested in the gaps between mental health policy, practice and research and how those areas don't really talk to each other so well, but also with a really strong belief that mental health is inherently political 
Um, and I'm interested in community action, in organizing and mutual aid and peer support and what happens in those spaces. Um, so I started at NSUN in January this year. So I had a few months before COVID and then since then um, everything has changed. I know lots of people who are delighted to, to hear you start at Ensign because you bring such rich experience in that sense to the work. Would you just be able to tell us a little bit more about Ensign and the kind of a little bit about the history maybe and some of the work generally done by Ensign? Sure, so Ensign is a UK charity and an England-wide membership organisation for people with lived experience of mental illness ill health, distress or trauma, as well as user-led um, or community-led groups. So we have just over 5,000 members at the moment. And our role really is to influence mental health policy, practice and research through amplifying the, the diverse voices of our membership. Um, and I suppose some of the things we try to do is push back against this idea that um, survivor knowledge is just located in the individual, but that it's actually well, not just one collective knowledge, but many collective knowledges. Um, and that um, what is sometimes called in mental health policy, this kind of service user voice, isn't one voice, but many, and that it's not a monolith. And, and just in terms of us being mindful about, about jargon and how we're using words, I'm just thinking, so Ensign is called the National Survivor User Network. Could you just tell us a little bit more about what both survivor and user mean in relation to Ensign's work? Because I know they can mean lots of different things to different people, but just some idea of how you're using those, those terms. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really, really key to um, so much work in mental health. Um, people, the way people talk about themselves and define themselves, um, I think is really key. And I think we need to push back against this idea that there should only be one word um, for defining um, a very you know, diverse group of people. So some people will talk about themselves as service users because they use mental health services. But of course, a lot of people with personal experience of mental ill health, distress or trauma might not want to use services, might want to use services, but might not be able to access them or might have used services in the past. So some people might also talk about themselves as ex-service users or as service refusers. Um, the survivor word is really interesting, I think, if you come at it from outside of mental health. People often ask me, but survivors of what? And it depends. For some people, it's survivors of mental distress or mental illness. For some people, it's survivors of the psychiatric system, of oppression. So there's something already deeply political in that. And for a lot of people, it's that and many other things, survivors of interpersonal violence, for example. So um, we try not to use one word survivor or service user or people with lived experience but we try and incorporate as many of these as possible when talking about um, our membership. Thank you Akiko and I think we'll, we'll perhaps come back to some of those issues when we when we talk a little bit more about what Ensign has been doing in relation to COVID-19. I was going to say I think just um, for anyone who isn't aware of Ensign's work I first came across Ensign because of the brilliant publications and, and reports which are all freely available on, on the Ensign website. Um, and as, what especially comes to mind is the brilliant report which is titled Dancing to Our Own Tunes, Reassessing Black and Minority Ethnic Mental Health Service User Involvement by Jayshree Kalatil, who's a mutual friend of both of us. And I'm also thinking about the, the four PI National Involvement Standards, so developed by people with lived experience as part of the National Involvement Partnership Project, which aimed to ensure more effective co-production to 
um, improve experiences of, of support. So there's some brilliant resources, isn't there, available if anyone um, is able to want to access them. Um, and so the next thing I thought we, we could talk about in relation to Ensign was that very recently you've launched a fund for micro grants to user led groups in response to COVID-19. And also linked to this, the Ensign website features just a whole series of brilliant short films and blogs um, which aim to go beyond the mainstream guidance and give a space for Ensign members to speak about what matters to them how they're experiencing this current period of crisis, how they're reaching out to others, a space to offer ideas, practical resources, connection, possibilities, validation, very similar actually um, to what Healing Justice is, is, is doing and what this podcast is, is part of. Um, so Akiko, can you tell us a bit more about this, the COVID fund um, and sort of how it came to be? Why did you feel it was needed? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we secured, um, some funding through MINE via the Departments of Health and Social Care and most recently a top-up grant from Lankelly Chase which is a grant-making trust to um, award small grants of initially up to £2,000 and then up to £5,000 to user-led, community-led, lived experience-led groups in England supporting people living with mental ill health or distress during COVID-19. This came about because the Departments of Health and Social Care had awarded National Mind a larger grant to support small to medium-sized charities working with people living with mental Ill health or distress and we made the case that a lot of smaller groups and organizations wouldn't be eligible for this pot of money which is a perennial issue I think in funding and that they had different needs and that we would be able to reach out to them. So we started off this process I think with excitement and hope and uncertainty because it wasn't something that Ensign had done before and it wasn't something that I'd done before either. We weren't sure what to expect. Um, I think we thought it could be that perhaps no one is doing everything, anything. Perhaps groups are paralysed because of COVID. Um, we'd heard a lot about and we'd, we'd seen a lot about um, the decline of user-led groups and we thought maybe there's just not enough activity to justify this funding. Um, so we, and, and I also thought, well, maybe people would just be applying for money for Zoom to move their groups online. And maybe it would be quite a kind of boring process where we're just paying for lots and lots of Zoom subscriptions. And that hasn't been the case at all. I've been completely bowled over by the entire process. So in total, we've distributed £120,000 to 79 organisations. Um, 42% of the funding has been awarded to organisations or projects led by people of colour. Um, it's been all over England um, and we've just been completely bowled over by the variety, by the richness, by the imagination, the pragmatism of all the, the projects we've funded and it has been such a pleasure and an honour just reading the applications and building relationships with the, the grantees. That's so just wonderful to hear that that energy is still there despite very difficult uh, conditions, which started long before COVID, right? But um, it's certainly been exacerbated by them. Do you think you could give us a little bit of a taste of, of some of the, what kinds of projects or what kinds of ideas um, you saw in the applications and that you funded? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's been a real variety. So I think some of the smaller applications have been for just under £200 and those have been 
tended to be for mutual aid or peer support groups to move online. And that's been quite straightforward. Um, but then we've had really wonderfully imaginative projects, for example, um, a project to develop a podcast for socially distanced walks um, based on, so this is Fruitcakes Creatives, um, led by Michelle Beharrio, who used to run the Largactyl shuffle walks um, around London. And so this would this was for a co-created podcast that all the socially distanced people within the group could share while they walked. Um, so again, just the, this wonderful sense of community, of creation, of, of creating something kind of long lasting together that kind of came out from that. And that was just really, really practical as well. So that was a nice example. Um, another nice example for me is, um, so this was a little bit further on in the process because obviously the situation changed with COVID because at the beginning it was complete lockdown and it was very, very new to people. And I think a lot of people didn't quite know what to do with the money. At the beginning, there was a lot of, um, there were a lot of calls for food, for example, and for that kind of um, more kind of emergency um, type um, need. And then obviously that shifted, well, whilst people kind of got grips with the situation. And then obviously the lockdown has lifted, but it hasn't lifted for everyone. So it has changed over time. And a more recent application has been for, from Adira, which is a Sheffield-based project um, supporting um, black women um, living with mental distress in Sheffield. And that was for a mobile hairdresser to go to um, acute mental health wards to do the hair of black men and women who are detained um, within services. And it spoke to me so profoundly, the, 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 the Ursula who runs the project said that when she was sectioned, one of the things that upset her the most was to be for her hair to be so wild that she would be seen as a stereotypical mad black woman. And for her to be able to have her hair under control and to feel like herself was deeply connected to her sense of self and also her sense of history, her sense of personal history. And she wanted to give that back um, to other women and men. So that was something that really spoke to me. Wow, thank you. Just amazing examples of personally and locally meaningful kinds of projects. And is there a way of, are you documenting those projects as, as, you, as they go through and as they use the funding? Yeah, absolutely. So Alison Faulkner, who um, is a very renowned um, peer um, survivor researcher, is evaluating the project. Um, we've got a number of videos that are coming out once a week. So the Adira one, I think, is coming out today. Um, so we can share that. Um, and um, there will be a report that will be written up, I think, in September or October. Um, we're really keen to learn from this. So for us, it's not just about amplifying these amazing projects but also for us as an organization to reflect on you know our processes and what we could have done better and what we've learned because it hasn't been straightforward and it certainly hasn't been what we thought it would be and are you able to to share with us kind of what 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 has been different from perhaps what you were expecting or what were the surprises what are some of the sort of key learnings that, that you found from this process because I know you said that this is quite a new process for for Ensign and for you yeah, absolutely. So I think that there's a number of things. One of them is around, I think, language, but obviously, like with anything to do with language and words, it's about a lot more than that. So I think we started off the, this, this project talking about reaching out to user-led organisations, to ULOs, which is what, that's the jargon. 
um, um, who were who were supporting people um, living with mental ill health, so mental health projects essentially. And what we found in this process was that very few of the people who applied um, referred to themselves as user-led. That just didn't speak to them at all. There were clear generational divides where younger um, kind of activist groups didn't tend to use that, that terminology, um, but also groups and organizations led by people of color didn't either. So that was super interesting. And people didn't talk didn't necessarily talk about their work being about mental health. So on a really practical level, this kind of matters for us because if as an organization, we're trying to reach out and connect with user-led organizations who are doing mental health work, and that doesn't speak to them in any way, we're not talking to the right people, if that makes sense. We're not talking to as many people as we could. It matters on a policy and funding level, because again, a lot of the, this terminology is also reflected in, in funding and in funders. If, if they are trying to map the sector and work out who is doing what, they're going to be missing a huge amount of work as well because their words won't match what is actually happening on the ground. But it's something more than that as well. So if, for example, um, so Colin King, his organization is one of the organizations um, we funded. So Colin King is, um, he's many things. He's an activist, he's, um, He's a social worker, he's, um, he's an academic, um, community organizer, um, amazing person. And one of the many, many things he does is that he does, um, he does lots of work in London um, with young black men um, in the community um, doing football projects. And if I take that from a kind of like policy or kind of funders perspective, that fits into, I suppose, like a youth work box and a community work box and a sports box, but it doesn't kind of scream mental health, but it is fundamentally a mental health project because you can't, you, you can't divorce the experiences of racialized people from either the criminal justice system or the mental health system. And it immediately positions mental health as a political, uh, in a political space and positions his work um, as a political act of resistance. Um, so that's what I thought. So that's, I think, potentially what we miss if I think we're not, if we're not attuned to the way in which people are describing their work for themselves. And if we're trying to kind of impose our own kind of labels or, or definitions or structures upon them. And did you notice, you know, what, what kind of language are people using in this work then if they're not using terms like mental health or user or survivor? Was there just a whole plethora of different kind of language being used or did you notice any sort of patterns? Yeah, so I think it'd be really interesting to, when, when we go through the evaluation to kind of pick up on patterns, I think there's just a real mix. So, um, and I think that's good. So, I mean, people, do talk about mental health, they talk about mental well-being, talk about all sorts of things. Some people talk about organizing, community organizing, community-based. But what we found, because one of the, the steps through our process was that we would only fund what we were calling user-led groups. So we had a process whereby we had a, a grant administrator contact shortlisted um, applicants to kind of ask them that question as well as other questions. What we found is that it was it was so obvious to people that they were user-led or what we were calling user-led that they didn't even think of describing it as such 
in their application because they were doing the work for their community and they came from that community and that it, it almost didn't have to be said and that that was interesting i find the whole discussion about this this kind of language in terms of this organizing that's happening and, and forms of mutual aid and community organizing so interesting because as you know quite a lot of my work is around what might be called global mental health or critical approaches to to global mental health and i've done uh, spent quite a lot of time with uh, with organisations that I guess we could describe as being user-led but might not use that language themselves, particularly in India. And I've had some really interesting discussions with folks there about this kind of language, particularly, um, you know, how important, say, it's been to organise around an identity of psychiatric survivor, for example, and how that often has a, a very inherently political um, kind of understanding often organized in relation to the human rights abuses that some folks experience um, within the psychiatric system or the mental health system more broadly but how that doesn't always speak to experiences of people who either for various reasons um, of discrimination or also because of where they live might not be able to experience that system so I'm thinking a lot of folks that I met in India hadn't experience the psychiatric system and so couldn't necessarily organize around being a psychiatric survivor in, in the same way. It also makes me think about um, the, the wonderful organization and, and network of the Pan-African network of people with psychosocial disabilities and how they used to be called the Pan-African network of users and survivors of psychiatry and how that name change uh, really sort of reflects um, how important that language is in terms of getting that community buy-in I suppose but also reflecting people's actual lived experience of either surviving systems or and also what psychosocial disability has offered a lot of people as a, as a kind of identity category I think and I'm thinking especially around lived experience did you see that kind of mobilization quite a lot within the fund because I know within mental health there are sometimes um debates about using the terms lived experience just because it doesn't it can mean a lot of different things as an example I've got lived experience of having quite a few of my family members go through a quite violent psychiatric system that I myself have never gone through that system and so the way live you know and, and there is a there, those experiences are linked but they're also very different from one another in certain ways and I, as a family member, could never claim to speak on behalf of someone who themselves went through that system. Do you see lived experience being used in kind of that kind of way or sort of creative ways in the, in the fund that you've been running? Yeah, it's a really interesting one, lived experience, isn't it? I mean, to go back to psychosocial disability, I don't think I saw that maybe once or twice in the applications, but I don't think that will surprise you because I don't think that's such a... Uh, it, that's used so often I think in the UK psychosocial disability you hear it a lot less lived experience yep we saw that a lot more um, I think it's it's a mixed term isn't it I mean no term is every term is deeply imperfect and lived experience has got lots of critics um, but perhaps there's something um, expansive about it which is also why people criticize it but expansive enough to feel comfortable for for all Organizing and what what I was really really interested in seeing was um, how how so much of the the kind of grassroots campaigning work I saw and that I hadn't been particularly aware of. So I'm thinking here more of perhaps kind of just 
slightly younger kind of activist groups, I guess, um, are, were, were not single issue. So they weren't just talking about mental health, but they were doing mental health and anti-racism work, for example, or mental health and environmental um, activism. And I think that that's something that we're seeing coming up quite a bit, which is different, I think, to a different generation of campaigners um, who were perhaps more focused on specific issues and this is because things changed. What I'm really, really interested in doing at NSUN is trying to bridge that generational divide a little bit and trying to create spaces where that, that learning can be shared. I think that would be really, really rich. I think it's so important because something, yeah, that I have sort of become very aware of hanging around, I guess, in a lot of these spaces over the past few years has been that a lot of organising, I mean, and I completely see why, and I think there's been amazing achievements here, um, but a lot of organising in the UK and perhaps in, in some other places as well around mental health has been based on people's contact more with psychiatry or with the mental health system let's say not necessarily just psychiatry but of course not everyone who's experienced distress has had contact with the psychiatric system and those who have will have had very different experiences so people don't experience the psychiatric system and mental health system in the same ways um, and I'm thinking about very different uh, experiences around say choice or coercion for some people rightly so i think there's a real concern about kind of over medicalization um but then also for others absolute lack of access you know people not being taken seriously uh, people in crisis actually having nowhere to go um, and i'm thinking obviously that that reflects the different positions people's different positionalities the different kinds of privilege that they're able to access different intersecting sort of forms of discrimination that they might experience um, so it's really exciting to hear that that you and that the Ensign are interested in um, in kind of engaging beyond that, I suppose, and thinking like you're saying about the more creative um, ways that people are organising, I suppose, around mental health. Yeah, I, th I think so because I think you know, uh, you know, as you've pointed out, it can feel sometimes w within this kind of campaigning world that there's a divide between people who are campaigning about abuse and then and other people who are campaigning about neglect and obviously that you know that they're the two sides of, of the same coin and as you say not everyone has personal experience of mental health services partly because of austerity and the cuts and because a lot of people can't access um, support and obviously mental health services have changed over the last 30 years um, what I'm interested in I suppose is was the energy that I found in the groups who were doing things. And I think that just seems to me a really fruitful area for Ensign to be focusing on. How do we facilitate that? We can't do it on behalf of, that's not the point. It's how do we facilitate that? How do we support that? How do we connect different groups together? How do we think together about sustainability, about, um, about healing, about, about burnout, because I think, I, I don't know if this speaks to you, you know, my experience of activism, of organising, is that often the work is held by a small number of individuals, and it's always the same people kind of doing the heavy lifting, and often those people are the most marginalised within their communities, and that, that, that labour is invisible. Um, if I think about our COVID life um, video um, and podcast, uh, a video and um, 
and uh, blog series. We had 34 videos and blogs. Um, everyone was either a woman or queer or trans or a person of color or disabled. And that wasn't you know, intentional, but I think that pattern reproduces itself across kind of organized community organizing and activism where it's where that 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 work is taken on quite often um, by more mar people with more marginalized identities and lives within the, within um, within their communities. And I'm interested in thinking about how we can how we can guard against burnout how how that kind of learning can be shared. One of the groups that we funded, Kunsaka, which is a group supporting um, African elders in London. Um, what I loved about their proposal was that they were really keen um, to think together about how to share the learning that was held and the experience that was held by the elders within their community and how they were still doing a lot of the work and how they could share it with younger activists who were coming up within their community and kind of bridge that gap. And so that the few people who were doing the work weren't completely burnt out and didn't just leave. I think it just sounds amazing work. And would, would you just tell us a little bit more about the, the COVID Life series of, of blogs that you have? I had a quick look yesterday and there's, there's so many of them and they're so rich. But I was also struck um, by a similar, by what you've just talked about in a way. So yeah, any more snippets to, to get people to have a look at them and have a listen? <laughs> oh, um, I, I, I love them. I love them. And for me, they are Ensun. Um, you know, rather than like me talk about what Ensun is, um, to just show people that series of videos with these very kind of, you know, different voices and perspectives and experiences. Um, there was so much love and rage and energy, you know, within all of those different um, di different clips. Um, it, it really, really speaks to me. So we, we've got, you know, lots of different types of organisations um, like People First, which is a user-led um, learning um, difficulties um, charity. We've got WISH, um, Women in Secure Hospitals. Um, someone from Freed Voices, which is the expert by experience arm of Detention Action, talks about um, what, it, what it's like, uh, what it was like um, in an immigration removal centre during COVID-19. So we, we tried to kind of reach out to as many people as possible. And also, I think at the beginning of COVID, we were only hearing a certain type of, well, certainly I was only catching a certain type of story in the media in terms of like my experience of lockdown. And I think we were trying to kind of just amplify lots of different experiences of lockdown and COVID. And hopefully, I guess, you know, a lot of these issues have been, um, have maybe come into visibility or a bit heard about more in relation to COVID, but have been much more long and longer going issues, if you know what I mean. In, in, in the sense that I'm thinking particularly about, say, the work of Detention Action and other groups in, in relation to immigration removal um, centres um, and the long and amazing campaigning work that's been done there, as well as the, the work around hearing voices groups, etc., in those carceral spaces, um, that some of these issues are long-standing in terms of detention, say, but are perhaps coming to the forefront a little bit more now because of COVID almost in a way. So COVID does present new challenges, but kind of on top of, of much longer existing challenges. 
and so yeah. there's an opportunity in a sense I suppose to bring that into people's uh, recognition and visibility a little bit more. I hope so I mean certainly from you know a policy perspective I'm hearing a lot of um, you know warm noises about um, you know about, about community work about um, how there needs to be you know a paradigm shift in how we do mental health um, you know about trying to work more locally and then obviously um, you know since the murder of George Floyd you know that we've had like you know ramped up kind of rhetoric around kind of anti-racism but you know I think the worry is always you know is it just words what does that look like in terms of action and you know within the, the charity sector certainly you know that there, there seems to have been you know a real a kind of wider reflective exercise about you know the whiteness of the sector and the the kind of structural racism within it and charity so white has done amazing work around this um but again what does that look like in terms of actual change on the ground i'm not so sure and i think it's a, it's an opportunity yes and i hope we we seize it but yeah it worries me as well and i guess we see that um yeah, the, the language potentially of um, community-led, lived experience-led, user-led, the, the, the kinds of things we've been talking about, of that being co-opted in that sense, or of it changing at least as it as it starts to be used um, within those kind of policy circles, I suppose. And I guess just thinking about um, your amazing experience, you know, long experience in this kind of work, but also your exposure more recently to the to the fund and to the COVID life blogs. And what what do you think it is or in drawing on your experience, what, what do you think it might be that makes that kind of lived experience, community led sort of work um, in a way different, like qualitatively different or meaningfully different than some of the other work that's going on? And because it's important to capture that, I guess, if we're concerned about the potential co-option, as if that language is going to be used more, um, say within policy, it's important that we have a sort of distilled idea of, of the richness of what makes that work different. And obviously it's not one thing, because as you said, there's not one homogenous kind of user or survivor, et cetera. But do you have any thoughts on, on what makes that sort of work special or different or to stand out? Yeah, so first of all, I mean, I'm totally um, in agreement with you about the, the potential co-option of these terms, and I'm already seeing it. Um, when I talk about user-led work within policy and actually mental health spaces, um, it's quite often, more often than not, conflated with kind of small to medium-sized charities. Um, and, and I was um, talking to a funder the other day who said that it's also conflated within funders' worlds. Um, and that's hugely worrying because they're not the same thing. It doesn't mean that one is better than the other, but they are different. But some overlaps perhaps, but they are different. So it's almost the sense that if it's small, it's kind of the same thing. It's almost like a size um, judgment. Um, so I think the co-option is, is very much happening. And I also think that because the, the terminology around social justice is kind of gaining quite a lot of traction, especially within um, the voluntary and community sector. There's a lot of enthusiasm towards kind of terms like grassroots and community. And I think that's quite dangerous if, you know, we don't quite clearly set out, you know, what is different about the sector. Um, and I think it is a sector, I think, you know, and that's one of the things I'd like Ensign to, to, to kind of work on is, is to present it as a very diverse, um, 
but but uh, but but uh, but as a sector, I think one of the things that came up quite a lot during um, the the fund during the process of the, the, during the grant making process was is this application in the spirit of the fund? Um, because there were so many really, really good projects that applied and they weren't in the spirit of the fund. And we tried to work out, well, what is it? What is this, this thing that we're trying to get at? And as you say, it's not one thing. There was something about, about that shared experience that the people doing the work had a shared identity or community or experience with the people that they were doing the work with. That, that for me is quite important because it turns this kind of helper helped kind of dyad on its head. And that's so strong within mental health services that, that you know, you are either being helped or you are a helper. And actually, you know, within mutual aid, within peer support, within community action, you hold both those identities and many more. Um, so that, that felt key. Um, equality, I guess. Um, again, so thinking about the, the power dynamics. So one of the questions we would ask people is, was, you know, not just, you know, other people doing the work, do they have the shared identity, the shared lived experience, but also the people with the power within the organization, the governance, um, the people on the management committee, the trustees, you know, what's their makeup? What does that look like? You know, because if you've got an organization where the trustees don't have that share, you know, so for example, this is a very typical example, you know, a refugee and asylum seeker charity, where the people may be um, doing the work at a more junior level, um, might um, have that identity or have that shared experience, but the more senior people are white and don't, and certainly the board is white, that's, a re that's really, really common within, um, within that sector. Um, but it's also relatively common within um, the disability world as well, and also within mental health. So that's kind of what we were looking at as well. Um, so yeah, something around power, um, something around equality, mutuality. I've missed loads of things, but yeah. What about you? What, what do you think is qualitatively different? Um, I think, yeah, power is a massive a massive issue there and and a sort of as you say I suppose I find it quite frustrating though understandable um when those who have the ultimate power such as the kind of trustees or the people running the organization or indeed where the funding is coming from in it sometimes um really in my opinion kind of conflicts or contrasts with what it sort of claims to be doing I guess I think it's quite important that we see um, the deeper roots of an organisation also be committed to the to the message of social justice, say, if that's what, what's being done. I'm also really interested, and this is a bigger conversation than, than we can have right now, but around the, the really important but really, really troublesome and problematic work of, of doing some of this um, kind of more lived experience-led work in really quite inhumane spaces so like in immigration removal centers in prisons in you know so i'm thinking how do um because i can think of some brilliant examples of that work that is being done and i also think freed voices part of detention action are fantastic um but but yeah doing that lived experience based really important work but in a really inhumane carceral system i think poses some incredible challenges which i would love to 
kind of look at more and learn more about, I suppose. So how do you do that work within those spaces, but also um, seek to get rid of those spaces entirely, to so have a kind of abolition um, stance on something, but also try and support people who are actually living through um, those, those spaces, I guess, in those contexts. But what I find just so exciting about what you've said is that, especially because of um, so long of, of austerity and cuts and um, really incredibly kind of hostile government policies to disabled people more broadly, people who have mental health diagnoses, users, etc. is that there is still that, that energy um, there and that some of these organisations are still managing to, not just managing, but perhaps thriving and doing that work and that the energy is there, I find really, really positive because I tend to hear the other side of that. Um, the cut side and which is incredibly important you know that's also the context of, of those organizations too but I find that very rich from from what you've said absolutely yeah. and a really kind of positive message I guess it surprised us um because like you we'd heard more about the cuts and you know the decline of user and so many groups have been decimated that's the thing so I think both stories are true um but we, we just weren't expecting this kind of explosion of energy. But I will say that one of the themes that came up again and again was the precarity of, 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 the, of, of this work, because people are doing this work, you know, I mean, most, most people aren't paid. And if they're paid, it's very, very little. Um, there's no capacity for, for, for planning, for funding. And so when COVID hits, people were just completely overwhelmed, you know, with the demands. But with no extra capacity and you know it's really something i think that um that funders need to think about because a lot of funding has been made available over the last few months for um for technically community groups but actually they haven't been eligible to apply so you know so groups so first of all lots of groups don't you know um aren't um big enough to apply so their, their income is too low and that the cutoff point is too high or they're not constituted in the right way so they're not you know um, a registered charity for example so that they're not eligible to apply but also actually you need to hear about these opportunities and i think this is where something like and someone like ensign can come in here and kind of support with that networking element um, so many um funding opportunities um that you know that I've applied for you know I've heard about through my personal networks and that shouldn't be the way it happens um, so how do we spread spread this information but also support organizations to fundraise when they're already doing the work and try and influence um, funders to make their processes kind of more straightforward and you know more accessible and I think that that that's the work that Ensign needs to be engaged in or part of it. And so in terms of that kind of as, as we sort of close this I guess I'm thinking that um, anyone listening uh, might be interested in, in how they might sort of get involved further with Ensign especially at what sounds like a really exciting time as you kind of start to think through some of these things and um, you know in terms of how you might better support the capacity of smaller, uh, more lived experience led groups, organisations, how you might support their infrastructure, what that support might look like. Do you think you could just briefly give us some idea of how people can get involved with Ensign? 
Yeah, absolutely. So we want to hear from you. Um, membership is free. You can um, join on our website. If you go to our website, www.nsun.org.uk, you'll see a membership join us tab. So you can join through that process. You can also find us on Twitter at NSUN News, or you can email me. Um, I think my email will be linked to the podcast. So you can contact me directly. But we want to hear from you because we have an inkling of what the different user-led, community-led, lived experience groups out there might need or want, but we're not 100% sure and we want to find out. So we're starting a process from around now where we want to reach out to you and kind of ask you what, what, what is most useful for us to do, us and some. Do you, do you want support with fun, finding out about funding opportunities? Do you want kind of governance support? Do you want us to lobby on your behalf? Do you want us to connect you with others? Do you need, you know, do you need kind of like support internally because the work is actually really really hard you know so is it more that kind of emotional kind of support that you need i don't know so we we want you to tell us what um what is most useful for you um so yes please contact us thank you so much akiko and yeah i would just really recommend having a look on the ensign website so the national survivor user network website um, and looking at the covid life blogs and videos that Akiko has been telling us about which are just fantastic and also the brilliant um, uh, older and up to more recent reports and publications events and which I personally find incredibly useful um, so thank you so much Akiko for your generosity and sharing just such rich experiences it's been so lovely to talk to you and as I just close this and pass over to Sarah, I just want to say thanks so much to Healing Justice London again for giving us this space. And thank you all for listening and for being here with us. Thank you. Thank you so much, China and Akiko, for such an incredibly rich session with just so much learning and so much to take forwards and to think about. Um, that was absolutely amazing. Just thank you so much. We're really honored to be in conversation with you both and it's gonna really benefit both our team and our community. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And to stay in touch with um, both Akiko and China, they are on Twitter. It's at Akiko M Hart and China is at China T Mills. And you can follow Ensun at Ensign News. And just to reiterate the Ensign website, it's www.ensign.org.uk, who are doing absolutely incredible work. So um, if you'd like to tweet about this session, we're using the hashtag through the portal HJL. And we're going to be having many more um, podcasts, workshops. Um, talks within through the portal so do stay in touch and keep up to date through our newsletter social media and website <laughs>